it's time to dream again about what the church could be. This vision is intended to come from Christ himself. So what does he want from his church and how do we reclaim it? Join us as we journey through the New Testament to discover how the ancient paths inform the future church. We're so glad you are here with us this morning. My name is Joe. I serve as one of the pastors here at Riverbend. I want to welcome you. I hope you're staying warm as we are getting closer to November. And then also wanted to mention to you while I'm up here, our our celebration of the Vine Church, which is happening next Saturday, is happening at their church location. So that's right in Schnecksville, in case you're wondering where it's at. But we're so excited about all that God's doing. He is clearly at work in our midst, and we are so excited to come together to celebrate the good work that he's doing in you, through you, and around you. And that's where we gather. We gather to remember how he's shown up, and we are reminded to look back at what he's done and even the challenges and the struggles that we have. And then we get a chance to look up together, to look up together, to point one another towards who this Jesus is and what it is that he has done for us. And I'm so excited as we're wrapping up our Future Church series today for you to hear from a good friend of mine who's part of our teaching team. He serves on Crew Church Movement staff, which helps to partner with the local churches to work on areas like evangelism, discipleship, leadership development. His name is Matt Kay. Let's give it up to Matt Kay. Yeah. Hey everybody. Make sure. Hey Jack. <laughs> oh man, it's good to be here this morning. How's everybody doing this morning? You okay? Um, this passage of scripture is very dear to my heart. Uh, it keeps coming up again and again and again, and we're going to take a look and, and, and read it together in just a moment. It, this passage of scripture was read at a wedding that I had the privilege of officiating last Saturday, and. Um, it was the first wedding I have ever been part of where the couple was already married. And um, it was the first wedding that I've ever, you know, officiated where the couple was already married too. So uh, a little backstory: story, uh, this couple had their wedding planned in March of 2020 uh, in New York City. And um, they were wondering, man, should we cancel this thing? Should we... Somebody else here, you probably experienced this too. You've been to a wedding that had to be canceled or something like that. But anyway, this wedding had to be canceled. And we're talking like hundreds of people. They canceled their wedding. They have to say goodbye to this thing. And they went to uh, maybe 20-ish person smaller wedding. And even with the pandemic hitting and some of the things they were learning and not wanting to put family members at risk, they scaled that back as well. And so I got a phone call one day from the groom. And he said, hey, Matt, If I call you Thursday or Friday and tell you we'll be there in about an hour, could you come downstairs out of your apartment and just marry us on the lawn just outside of your apartment building? And so that's exactly what we did. And the bride and groom, it was a really sweet and beautiful time. We did it literally right outside of a friend's apartment building. And they're standing there and people are walking by, Instagramming the wedding. And, you know, security guards are like, oh, my goodness, that's so beautiful. Um, And it was, it was, it was really beautiful, but it was bittersweet. Because, and especially I was thinking about the bride, she had to say goodbye to a lot of things that day. Bridesmaids there, the celebration and the worship that would have taken place with hundreds of people in the room, mom and dad walking her down the aisle, something she's probably been dreaming about since she was a little girl. I mean, these kinds of things were taken away 
through the pandemic. And so here we are last weekend, and all the things are happening, you know? The room is filled with people. Uh, you know, bridesmaids come down, beautiful music. We go through this beautiful liturgy, and there's just this moment to kind of pause in the midst of it. There's a multiple pastors participating in the event. And then uh, we get to this part where we're about to say the vows, and we just have a moment to just take a breath for a second. They've already made these vows, but they were renewing them before family and friends and community. We had a moment to just pause right there, take a deep breath, just look out at this crowd of people who have raised you, walked with you, led you to Jesus, discipled you in your faith, been your friends for years, family, friends, community, church. And there was something about that moment, especially as Revelation 21 was one of the passages of Scripture that was read. Um, There was this beautiful moment. Weddings already are packed with symbolism. The ring being a symbol of the lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. The marriage itself being an outward and visible sign of Christ's love for his church. And in this wedding, the wedding itself that day being a beautiful picture of the restoration of God that he loves to restore things that have been lost. Amen? He loves to restore things that have been taken away. He loves and delights in making all things new. And so... I just want to invite you as we enter into this text this morning, Revelation chapter 21, where the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, and God makes all things new. Will you stand with me as we read this morning's passage together, and then we'll dive in to this morning's sermon. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, as we look forward We pray that the future hope of resurrection, the future hope of you making all things new, the future that we have in Jesus Christ would come crashing into the present in a way that prepares us and gets us ready for this day. May we look forward, but may we also be a signpost in the present of what your future is going to look like through the power of your Holy Spirit, God. Would you glorify your name in this place? Would you deepen our trust in you? Make us more like you, Lord Jesus. Uh, For your name's sake, for your glory, your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can have a seat. And so as we go through the book of Revelation, you know, the word, the word translated Revelation is just apocalypse. This book is called the apocalypse. And sometimes the apocalypse is like a word that you typically think of when you think of like end of the world stuff, um, which in this case, this is about the end of the present world and the beginning of a new one. But the word apocalypse in its original meaning just meant something revealed that was previously hidden. Right? And so when you're standing in front of a window and you can kind of see through the curtain, and then you go and you pull the curtain back and now can see things clearly, that's kind of what apocalypse means. Right? God is pulling back the curtain so that you can see 
on earth what's happening in the spiritual realm. You can see more of what's going on. So, for instance, Pastor Joe preached on a worship text in Revelation a couple weeks ago, right? But God pulls back the curtain for John because when we're in worship on the Lord's Day, you pull back the curtain. Here's the thing. We start at 1030 a.m. on Sundays, but guess what? We didn't start worship at 1030 a.m. on on, on Sundays. We actually joined in worship at 1030 a.m. on Sunday because the worship's always, always happening around the throne of God, right? So the curtain gets pulled back, and there's four living creatures, and there's 24 elders, and they're casting their crowns before God and before the Lamb, the curtain being pulled back. And so John gets the curtain pulled back on a number of things, and some of those things are future things, right? And so in in today's passage where we're going to park, John gets a vision of God's future, of the end of this world and the beginning of the next one. So John sees a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. He saw the, new, uh, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And he heard a loud voice from the throne saying these things. We just read them. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things has pa- have passed away. One of the things that you'll notice in this text is that we don't get to the new heavens and the new earth until we've gone through the first heaven and the first earth. We don't get to the new creation until these former things in verse 4 have all passed away. We don't get to what I call the no mores, no more death, no more crying, no more pain, until we've gone through the death and the mourning, and the crying, and the pain. The relief of the new creation comes through the pain of the creation in its present state. The old school pastors used to say it like this, we don't get to the crown without going through the cross first. We don't get to glory without going through the crucible of suffering first. And so the question isn't whether or not you're going to go through pain in this life. But how will you respond to God and others in the midst of your pain? Not whether or not you're going to go through pain, but how will you respond to God and to other people in your life in the midst of your pain? How many of you have experienced pain over the past two years? Anybody in the room? Two years ago, I lost two of the most major father figures in my life in the same year. We go through pain. We've all been through a global pandemic. We go through pain. That's affected you and me in various different ways. Maybe you've gone through some kind of relational pain over the past week or months or years. Maybe you suffer from some type of physical affliction or some type of emotional affliction. And we're living in a time that's filled with pain. So even if it's not deeply personal to you, just pick up the newspaper, right? And you see we're living in an incredibly hostile time. People are hostile about politics. People are hostile Uh, about uh, all kinds of things. We have uh, racial tensions and ethnic hostilities. We've got partisan divides and people hostile to one another over allegiances to lefts and rights. I mean, we're living in a crazy time. We hear stories about people who abuse their power and take advantage of people. We hear stories about people's innocent lives being taken, whether in the womb or in the streets. 
There's all kinds of stuff going on. We live in a time that is filled with pain. Amen? That's just saying yes, by the way. Amen doesn't mean that's a good thing. We're living in a time that is incredibly racked with pain, so I don't need to talk to you about pain. You already know it exists. The question isn't whether or not we're going to go through it, but how are you going to respond to God and to your neighbor and to your brothers and your sisters in the midst of the pain that you're going through? And how you respond to God and how you respond to other people in the midst of your pain is going to be deeply impacted by what you actually believe God is doing in the midst of your pain and where you actually believe you're going even in the midst of your pain. C.S. Lewis. I don't think I ever not quote C.S. Lewis, by the way. That's just a side note. C.S. Lewis on pain. He says, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So Lewis says, pain does two things to you. It demands that you pay attention to it. And second, God uses it to wake you and me up. He wakes us up, and in particular to who he is and his will for our lives. And so here's two questions for us this morning as we keep diving in. One, if pain always demands being attended to, is your pain being attended to? Are you paying attention to what the pain is meant to bring to the surface for you? before God and before others? Is your pain being attended to? Is there something in your life that you need to mourn this morning? And second, how is the Lord waking you up to himself and his will for your life and his purpose for you, especially in the midst of your pain? How is he waking you up to the reality of himself? So let's start with attended to. Is your pain being attended to? I don't know about you, but I don't like to pay attention to things that hurt or are uncomfortable. Are you with me? A check engine light goes on in my car, and I'd rather not know why. You ever do that? Check engine light goes on your car, you'd rather not know why. I don't want to go under the hood to find out what's going on. I'm not even a mechanic, so I shouldn't even go under the hood. But if you've ever, and I know some of you in this room have totally done this, you've taken your car to the mechanic, there's a check engine light on, and all you really wanted the mechanic to do was to try to find a way to turn the light off. You've probably even asked the mechanic to do that very thing. You're like, oh, well, sir, we could fix this. Miss, we could fix this. We could have this thing going, or we could just find a way to turn the light off. And you're like, turn the light off. I don't want to deal with that, right? On a more serious note, we do that with our emotions, our relationships, all kinds of other pain in our life. A while back, I was talking to a man on his deathbed. And he had this thing that he was telling me he hadn't talked to anybody about it. Things from when he was 16, 17, 18 years old. The man was in his 80s. And he, I'm sorry, I just keep messing with this thing on my ear. He's like telling me these things that he's been too ashamed to talk about before anybody else. He's like, I just got to tell, tell you this stuff that's going on, you know? And he shared stuff with me from when he was 16, 17, 18 that really, really hurt family, hurt people in his life changed the whole trajectory of their family situation, where they lived, they had to move. It was wild. There was like a juvenile detention thing going on. Wild stuff. But, and, and, and in that moment, it made me so glad that there was a freedom and release in that space on his deathbed to release this thing he's been holding for so many years. And on the other hand, it made me wonder, 
how long has that thing been sitting there, that check engine light on in his soul, and not wanting to pay attention to it, not wanting to look at it? I was just reading through the Bible reading that I'm doing right now is going through Acts. And in the book of Acts, Jesus ascends to heaven to go to the right hand of the Father, tells the disciples to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And what's really interesting is in their waiting, the Spirit comes in chapter 2 in Pentecost. But before he comes, in their waiting, they address this hole in the room, this elephant in the room between them. Remember the 12 apostles? They are now 11 because somebody had betrayed Christ, sold him for 30 pieces of silver, then went out and committed suicide. I think what's really interesting is that before the power of the Spirit comes upon the church, the church has to deal with the betrayal that happened in their midst. They have to address the check engine light and deal with the stuff first. And maybe there's some type of hole in your heart or some type of Judas incident in your life, and it's been sitting there like this, and you've been not wanting to look at it. Maybe today is your day to take a look at why the check engine light is on. Sometimes we're afraid of dealing honestly with the pain in our lives because we're scared of what's on the other side of it. I don't want to take my car to the mechanic because it might cost me something. I don't want to look at the pain I've caused or the pain that's been caused to me because it's going to be painful to move towards that person and into that situation and address the thing that's really between us. I don't know if I want to deal with that. How do we just turn the light off, Lord? Can we put a Band-Aid over this one? And yet Jesus wants to actually deeply, thoroughly, beautifully heal the wound. The scriptures not only encourage us to face our pain, but to actually trust God with it. With the promise that there is always good, ultimately, on the other side of it for those who have put their trust in Jesus. Psalm 126 says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Yes, the sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes with the morning. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn are blessed, because those who are mourning are dealing honestly with all of the pain and all of the disappointments that life in a fallen, sinful, and broken world has to offer. Those who mourn are seeing the world as it truly is. So people are shouting Hosanna on Palm Sunday as Jesus is riding into the city. And the Gospel of Luke tells us this detail that Jesus is weeping. They're partying, he's weeping because he knows that they won't repent and put their trust in him and receive the salvation in life that he's bringing to them. Shouts of Hosanna on Sunday turn to shouts of crucify him on Friday. Blessed are those who mourn because they see the world as it really is and they shall receive comfort from God. There is something about that kind of mourning that does something to you on the inside. Not only does it allow you and open you up to experience God as the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, but it also cultivates in you a hunger and a thirst for a better world. Not just some random better world, but specifically the new heavens and the new earth that we just read about in Scripture. The new heavens and the new earth where Jesus is going to return again and make all things new, all things right, wipe wipe away every tear from every eye, This is what godly mourning produces in us. It's a hunger and a thirst for the wrong things to be made right. And this hunger and thirst is what Jesus is referring to when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
for the wrong things to be made right first with me inside here and my relationship to God. That's God making us just through the blood of Jesus. We'll talk more about that. But then the wrong things right out here when Jesus returns to make all things new again. This is the hunger and thirst. And so what is your no more this morning? If you long for a world where there's no more tears and no more pain and no more death and no more crying and no more mourning, then there's also no more of the things that cause death and pain and mourning and crying. And so what is your no more this morning? What is the no more that you long for? Years ago, I had the privilege of teaching this passage to kindergarten, first, and second graders. And I was like, how am I going to teach Revelation chapter 21, the coming of the kingdom of God in all of its fullness, to kindergarten, first, and second grade? And kindergartners, first graders, and second graders that know Jesus totally get it. They totally get it. What is the no more that you long for? And by the way, some of the no mores that you long for, sorry, they don't really matter that much. (laughs) But some of the no mores that you long for really, really, really matter. And so it was really funny. What are the, some of the no mores that you long for? We talked about a kingdom coming where Jesus returns, makes all things new, makes all things right. So what are some no mores that you think will be no longer there? And so the kids start raising their hands. No more homework. No more school. And some of the Lehigh students are nodding their heads right now. They're like, yeah, I feel that. No more. Scriptures do say we will rest from our labors. So there you go. No more homework, no more school, and and it started off kind of trivial, but then it moved into no more mommies and daddies fighting, no more mommies and daddies living in different homes. It started to go to no more grandmas and grandpas dying and going to heaven. And that one really got me, because dying and going to heaven, by the way, is a good thing. But why was that so profound, what that child said? No more grandpas and grandmas dying and going to heaven. Let me just affirm, that's a very, very, very good thing. But what that child might have not been able to articulate, but she knew instinctively in her gut, that even still, the separation of death is wrong. That grandma in heaven, in her spirit, but her her body in the grave, there's something about that separation that wasn't meant to be. And grandma on the other side of a veil that I can't go through, that wasn't meant to be. That kind of separation wasn't meant to be. Yes, it's a good thing that her spirit is with Jesus because she believed in Jesus. But her body in the grave, her spirit in heaven, is not the ultimate hope of the Christian life. Do you hear me, brothers and sisters? This is not the ultimate hope of the Christian life. The ultimate hope of the Christian life is the resurrection from the dead. Do you get me? Are we still together on this one? If you go to a Christian funeral and they say she is finally home now, they're not telling the whole story. She's not finally home now. She will be finally home when Christ raises her from the dead, restores her body and soul back together, and puts back, to the thing, puts back together excuse me, the things that should have never been torn asunder by sin and death. And so Jesus, even on the cross, he says to the person next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus' spirit goes to heaven when he dies, Right? But we don't celebrate just Good Friday. We celebrate Easter Sunday because his body got up from the grave. Amen? This is beautiful. Your hope, friends, brothers and sisters, our hope is deeply embodied. It's not a spirit goes into heaven and floats around and we don't know what it's going to look like. We have some idea of what it's going to be like because Jesus' body, his resurrection from the dead, is the first fruits 
of the resurrection from the dead. You and I will live in an embodied new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I don't know what that's going to look like. But I know you and I are called to let that shape our Christian imagination about how we live in the present. Imagine a world where there is no more greed, no more sexual immorality, and no more idolatry. If you believe that that is your home, you will rid your soul of greed by the grace of God today. You will rid your soul of sexual immorality by the grace of God today. You will rid your soul of idolatry, of loving and trusting and clinging to and confiding in things that are not Jesus Christ. You will rid your soul of those things today in preparation for where you believe you're headed. Does that make sense? Where you're headed shapes what you bring with you. I don't bring my TV and my fridge and my suitcase when I go on a vacation because I've got no need for my fridge and my TV where I'm going. And where you're headed, you have no need for greed, no need for sexual immorality, no need for idolatry. Those things won't exist where you're headed. And so we prepare today for that day. First John puts it this way, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in Jesus purifies themselves just as he is pure. The future shapes your present. We're living, we're going to be living in a world for eternity where there's no bitterness and there's no hatred and there's no irreconciled relationships. How does that shape your today? Well, you start to read your heart of bitterness today by the grace of God. And you forgive as he's first forgiven you. You rid your soul today of hatred by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. And you seek to reconcile relationships on this side of eternity. As hard as that might be, in as much as possible, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all people, it says in Romans. They, can't, they, you, they have to do their part, but you do your part in preparation for that day. You're going to live in a world where there's no more hunger. No more thirst, no more people without clothing, no more sickness. And this is why the saints in Matthew chapter 25 live as a preview of that day in the present, where they go and they feed the hungry, they clothe the naked, they give drink to the thirsty, they visit those who are sick and in prison, because we get to be a living preview today in preparation for that day. There's a theologian, his name's N.T. Wright, and he talks about how whenever the kingdom of God comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, what happens at that moment is part of God's future gets to show up and meet us in the present. The future where all things will be made new shows up for a moment in the present. When we love one another as he has first loved us, when we forgive one another, when we worship him, we're all participating in things that we're going to be doing for eternity. And if you take a look at Jesus' earthly ministry, there's an element of this in almost everything that he's doing. So we're going to a world where there's no more blind eyes. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What happens to blind people when Jesus is around? They can see again. We're going to a world where there will be no more lame feet. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What happens to lame people when Jesus comes in their presence, they can what? Walk again. We're going to a world where there's going to be no more disease or sickness anymore. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What happens when a leper comes into the presence of the king of kings and lord of lords? The leper is cleansed. 
We're going into a world where there will be no more death. And I love it because Jesus, even on a couple instances, rises people, raises people from the dead by his mighty power. It's a preview in the present of God's future kingdom. And then he invites people, come, follow me. This is where we're headed. Will you come? Follow me. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. So what is the no more that you long for? And what would it look like for your life and mine to be a living preview in the present? That by the power of the Holy Spirit, God gives others in your life a glimpse of what his future looks like today and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. That your kids look to you and they see a glimpse, a preview of the coming kingdom in the way husbands love their wives and the way kids are raised and the way neighbors are loved and cared for. This is what we get to be, amen? It's beautiful, and it's not by our power or strength. It comes from him and from him alone. It comes through trusting him and responding to his grace. No more mouths getting dry and thirsty. (laughs) That little girl... No more grandmas and grandpas dying and going to heaven. I had to pause for a minute because grandma and grandpa dying and going to heaven is so good, but there's a good that's beyond the good, as we just talked about. They will be resurrected and we'll be together again. You know, I can't wait for the resurrection because I get to meet John Kay. I haven't seen him since I was three. He's my dad. and He died from a heart attack. I can't wait to meet him because my uncle, Art Kay, who died in 2019, tells me that hanging out with me is like hanging out with him. (laughs) I never really knew him. Don't you look forward to seeing certain people again? It's going to be so good. I'm going to have my grandfather, my uncle, my dad, myself. And then we get to talk to people like Paul, Peter, the apostles. I mean, this is going to be incredible. And we have to let passages like Revelation chapter 21 shape our Christian imagination deep in our hope so that we can continue to march forward with joy in this good news of Jesus. That little girl, she was saying so much in that little statement. No more death is what she was longing for, and no more separation from grandma and grandpa. I don't want the veil of separation anymore. And trust me, friends, if you can't stand the veil of separation, separation, excuse me, the pain of separation isn't something that we humans merely experience. The pain of separation deeply grieves the heart of God, too. The pain of separation from people he made, the pain of separation and seeing his creation in decay, The pain deeply grieves the heart of our God, too. One of the major dimensions of sin, this thing we call sin in Scripture, is separation. It's the very nature of sin that wants to live in separation from God and from self and from others. It's kind of this denial of the check engine light regularly. I don't want to look at God. I don't want to look at my sin and my guilt, and the things that I've done. I don't want to look at others and where I need to reconcile or forgive or receive forgiveness. I don't want to look at any of that stuff. Somebody just turn the check engine light off. And friends, we just can't turn our faith in Jesus into God, please turn the check engine light off. God wants to go deep under the hood. He wants us to look at the stuff. And so one of the major dimensions of sin is separation. Sin wants to live separated from God. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Sin says, yeah, but I'd like to give that a try anyway. Sin is a self-reliant separation 
that lives as though it doesn't need God. One catechism simply defines sin like this. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration, the tearing asunder of all creation, the tearing asunder of what God had put together. And here's part of the problem with sin. You can't simply make it go away by simply trying harder to stop sinning. Ask somebody who has a really, really bad cold to stop coughing. Stop sniffling. Stop seizing. Stop coughing. Stop sniffling. Stop seizing. No, no, no. You don't say stop the symptoms. You say stop the affliction. Stop the sickness. And this is the thing we say. We just can't behave our way out of the sin situation. We need a medicine that's going to cure us from deep within. Amen? It's a sickness of self-reliance. And if it's not healed... It results in separation from God, not only in this life, but beyond death and into forever. Not only physical death, but the scriptures talk about a spiritual death as well. If you read further in the passage that we just read, Revelation chapter 21.8 calls it the second death. It says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, another word for unbelieving, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice the fulfillment of their sexuality outside of a covenant between a man and a woman, a marriage covenant. Sorcerers, those who practice witchcraft. Idolaters, those who seek for their ultimate joy, worth, and satisfaction, something that is not their creator, God, and their redeemer, Jesus Christ. And all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The ultimate end of one's self-reliance is that kind of separation from God forever. Jesus sums it up in Matthew 7 to people who call him Lord but don't do his Father's will. He says, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The separation that starts in this life but will continue forever if it's never healed. And even though this separation is the just punishment for our sins, And in some strange, twisted way, it's actually what sin wants. Sin wants to be apart from God. God is giving sinners what they want when they don't have him for eternity because they never wanted him to begin with. This is all of our condition apart from the grace of God. So even though the separation is the just punishment for our sins, the scriptures show us just how much God's heart is grieved over the separation, just like that little girl is grieved over the separation of death. In Ezekiel chapter 33, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die? 1 Timothy 2 says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise in coming back to make all things new. He's not slow to fulfill that promise as some count slowness, but it's patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so in that longing, I don't want them to keep running away from me. In that longing, I don't want them to be on the other side of the veil and separated. In that longing, God starts doing this wild thing. He starts tabernacling. Can you say that with me? Tabernacling. I think it's a real word. We'll go to that next slide. 
When the children of Israel were brought out of the land of Egypt, they wandered through the wilderness and they lived in tents. And God told them, build me one too. I want to live among you. I don't want to be far from you guys. I want to be right there in the midst of you. And so God has them build a tabernacle. The, the verb is translated in your Bibles, make, I will make my dwelling among you, right? But it's quite literally tabernacling. The tabernacle is a noun, tabernacling is the verb. I want a tabernacle among you. I don't want to be far from you. I don't like the separation. I want to get as close as I can. Eventually, they move into the promised land. They don't live in tents anymore. They live in houses. And one of the kings of Israel says, God, I want to make you a house too. And he says, your son is going to make me a house. And that's where my presence will live. So Solomon builds a house for the Lord, a temple. And the glory of God descends upon the house, and he lives there among them as their their God, and then with him as, as the people of God. And so... The, the, God's house is right in the middle of the city. You can go right up the hill and go to God's house. But here's the thing. The separation is so acute. You can go, anybody can come up to the temple. But if you're not Jewish, you can only come so far. And Jewish people can come into the temple. But if you're not a priest, you can only come so far. And even the priests can come into the temple. But if you're not the high priest, you can only come so far. And even the high priest can only come into this one place one time a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. There's this veil that's there that's separating the most holy place from the rest of the community. And so even with God moving into the neighborhood, there's still this veil, almost like a keep-out sign. One children's book that we have at home simply says, because of your sin, you can't commit. And that veil there is basically a sign to remind them of the separation that exists. And God wanted to go even a step further and not have that separation remain. And so the scripture says that God tabernacled yet again. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, And God became fle- and the Word became flesh. God became flesh and made his dwelling, which now you know is the word what? Tabernacling. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He went so far as to put on human flesh because he wants to be that close to you, that close to me. God became man in order to bring humanity back to God. So Jesus comes and lives the sinless life we never lived. He goes up on a cross to suffer and die the experience of separation from God that we've totally deserved. And he took our place on the cross. Far from being somebody who doesn't want to look at the check engine light or what's under the hood, Jesus looks directly at it. And not only does he look directly at it, he dives right into our sin. He dives right into our shame. No, he doesn't sin, but he takes our sin on himself, our shame on himself, our sorrows and griefs he bore in his body on the cross. Jesus Christ experiences the separation from God that we've deserved and we've chosen, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he knew that looking hard at what was on the check engine light of humanity's sin and shame and sorrow and the separation between us, he knew that what was on the other side of it was going to be so good. It was worth looking at. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
the sin condition that we could never heal on our own. We couldn't try hard to stop coughing, stop sniffling, stop seizing. But the medicine that brought us the healing life came through the blood of Jesus on the cross. His body and blood, the medicine that saved us and set us free. Amen? He's so good. And here's the beautiful thing. As he died on the cross, that keep out sign in the temple was torn in two. Opening up the way for sinners like you and me to repent and to enter into the presence of a holy God through the sacrifice that Jesus made. He broke down the separation between us and him, that veil, at every level. And so he wasn't just content to live next to you in a tent, or next to you in a temple, or even next to you in the flesh. He wants to make your very heart his home so that there is no separation whatsoever between you and God for those who have put your trust in Jesus Christ. Where's his address now? It's not the temple in Jerusalem. His address is you who have put your trust in Jesus. You are the temple of the living God, the scripture says. This is where he lives. And ultimately, he'll return again to make all things new. And so wrapping up this morning, how can we respond to this reality? How is the Lord, back to our questions, how is the Lord waking us up to the reality of himself and his will for our lives, especially in the midst of our pain? There is something about pain that can help us to to bring us into alignment with God's purpose for our life. Psalm 119 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted in order that I might learn your statutes. It also says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I hold fast to your word. Maybe God is using some pain in your life to draw you further and further and further into his heart for you and back to his love for you, or perhaps even for the first time. The verses following the text that we read this morning say this, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Perhaps you are hungry and thirsty for the righteousness that we've been talking about this morning. Perhaps you're hungry and thirsty for no separation between you and God anymore, and yet you've never put your trust in Jesus yet. Maybe you're saying, I want that water of life without payment. It comes to you for free because somebody paid for it at great cost. Jesus paid it all, and that's why this gift is yours for free. Without payment for you, total cost for him. Maybe you're saying, I don't want to experience that separation from God anymore, and I want to receive that water of life. It's so simple. You simply turn from your sin and your self-reliance, and you come and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, who loved you, who loved you and loves you and gave himself for you. Perhaps somebody else here already knows Jesus, but you need this morning to anchor yourself in the comfort and courage of knowing deep within your bones that Revelation 21 is actually your future. That you're headed to a future where there's no more sin, sorrow, shame, death, mourning, crying, tears anymore. Do you know what that does to us, knowing that like even death can't stop us? It gives us the courage to face anything without fear. Amen? If death can't hold you down, what's going to stop you from having that hard conversation, from leaning in and admitting your guilt in a certain situation where you need to lean in and admit, from going and making things right with that person, from choosing to forgive? What's holding you back when even death can't stop you because of the precious blood of Jesus that was shed for you? Isn't it incredible? When I was a kid, we used to play these video games, and like, you know Super Mario Brothers, right? 
Um, every time you got the star in Super Mario Brothers, you just got invincible. And you played the game totally differently when you knew that the bad guys couldn't stop you. This is like the Mario star for you. What would it look like for you to play the game differently and to live through life differently, knowing that even death can't hold you down? The scriptures say that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And finally, for all of us, what would it look like for you to cultivate a Christian imagination? To believe that your life in the present was meant by the power of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit to be a preview of the life to come. That in the way that you love, the way that you live, the way that you care, you're pointing forward to all the no mores of the gospel, of the gospel of the kingdom of God. In the way that you care for the poor, in the way that you feed the hungry, in the way that you visit the sick and in prison, in the way that you proclaim the gospel, in the way that you repent and seek to live holy because of the holy God who has made you his own. You're all living in light of eternity. What would it look for you, look like for you? 2 Corinthians 5.17. Behold, if anyone's in Christ, even though the new creation hasn't come yet, the new heavens and the earth hasn't come yet, but if anyone's in Christ, he or she is already a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You are the living preview of the coming kingdom of God. It starts with you. Can I take two more minutes of your time? <laughs> this is a great scene at the end of Lord of the Rings. When the ring is finally thrown in the fire, death and the shadows have, defeated, have been defeated. Sam and Frodo, if you know the story, basically like some terrible evil has gone into the world, and they've just defeated it. And although that's been made well, they're not sure if they're going to die. They get rescued by these eagles, and one of the things that happened on their journey through this whole thing, is that one of their best friends halfway through the journey died. A guy, a wizard by the name of Gandalf, died in the battle. And the loss was like a terrible blow to them. One of the things they didn't know in the midst of their part of the journey was Gandalf rose from the dead. And there's all kinds of things Gandalf was doing over here on this end to save them and rescue them and join them in the fight, even though they didn't know. And so as, as they get rescued, this guy Sam, he's laying in his bed and he wakes up he doesn't know that his friend has been resurrected. And he wakes up to this. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? Gandalf speaking to him, his resurrected friend. And Sam lay back, stared with an open mouth, and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he couldn't answer. And at last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then the wizard laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. And Sam listened, and as he listened, the thought came to him that he hadn't heard laughter, the sound of pure merriment for days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. Are all the sad things going to come untrue? For you who have put your trust in Jesus Christ, the answer is yes and amen. It's all going to come untrue. And may the sound and echo of his laughter from the throne 
reverberate in your souls this week, next week, and this time forth, and forevermore. Pray. Lord, we thank you that this is our heritage and our hope, that you longed to dwell with us and to be in us and among us, and that the veil of separation tore you apart so much that you had to go to the cross. Thank you for redeeming us by your blood, Lord. Thank you for bringing the healing medicine through your body broken for us on the cross. And Lord, would you just bring the response from our lives that you desire, even now as we continue in this time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.